Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with Cara Santa Maria about growing up Mormon, science, and promoting rationality in a climate increasingly hostile to facts. Cara Santa Maria is a science communicator and journalist. She appeared in both the book and film versions of A Better Life. I asked her about her experience growing up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, so born and raised, um, not one of those long-standing Mormon families. You know, sometimes when you meet people who um, grew up LDS, their grandparents, grandparents, grandparents were LDS, and they were like, you know, pilgrims. Um, But we (laughs) were... Uh, or I guess they call themselves pioneers. Yes, they were pioneers. But my parents converted, but they converted before my sister and I were born. So um, we did grow up born and raised in the church. But um, I think it wasn't like our extended family was also Mormon. It was just my nuclear family. And I was in it um, pretty deeply until I decided personally to leave when I was uh, about 15 years old. My parents were divorced when I was much younger, maybe around six or seven, maybe eight. Gosh, it's hard to pin down exactly when that was. Mm -hmm. Um, And my dad stayed, you know, really firmly convicted in the church. He remarried a Mormon woman who already had some children. So I had kind of a new blended family that was, you know, LDS all the way. But my mom stopped going to church. She was, um, I don't know if she would have ever considered herself an atheist. I don't know if she even does now. But she definitely had all of the, I think, um, symptoms of a secular humanist. <laughs> I'm not so sure if she was ever like a true believer, um, but she didn't really influence me in any way. She just kind of let me do my thing, be who I was. And so when it came time to tell her I, I wanted to leave the church, she was incredibly supportive. But my father, who had joint custody with me, was absolutely not supportive. So therein came a, a bit of conflict for a few years of my life. What caused you to lose your faith? I don't know. You know, it's it's one of those really tough things because things are murky when you're a teenager. Like I think back and I, I'm not sure how solid all of my memories really are. I was also soon after that uh, started to experiment with, you know, drugs and alcohol. I guess less alcohol. I didn't really ever drink much, but like drugs and having fun with my friends and being a teenager, which I never really did when I was uh, super Mormon. I think I did a little bit of, you know, maybe going against the grain stuff, but um, then I really dove into it in a in a kind of committed way for a few years after I left the church. And so it's hard for me to look back and know exactly what my state of mind was when I was so young. But I do think, and I was always in therapy, so there were definitely um, exercises in trying to come to terms with who I was and who I wanted to be and what my true beliefs were. I think now, you know, as as somebody in their mid-30s trying to dissect all of this, I feel pretty confident saying that I'm not sure I was ever really a believer. I'm not sure if I lost my faith as much as I just never was able to truly find my faith. Hmm. You know, I think as a young Mormon child, a lot of what you do, and maybe this is different for different people, but for me personally, a lot of what you do is, you know, trying to make your parents happy and your family happy and impress people and prove that you're worthy. Mormons are kind of different than other um, Christian denominations in that they don't get baptized until they're eight years old, because in their mind, that's an age of consent. Um, 
it's sort of a personal decision. But of course, what eight year old really has a lot of agency, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to read some philosophy and then make a decision about this. (laughs) So I, I still think even though I was baptized, I was doing it for my parents. I mean, I I thought I believed, sure, but I'm not sure that I ever, quote, felt the spirit. I'm not sure that I ever had a really firm conviction like a lot of the older people seem to within my church. And when I started to really think for myself and explore these ideas and question them, uh, it wasn't a big leap for me to say, yeah, maybe this is all bullshit. Mm, Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was there a moment you can think back and realize, oh, that was the moment where I realized that there probably wasn't a God and this was all made up? No, I think it was really aggregate. You know, I think it was kind of um, one of those things where I had been pretending to do it so long that I thought it was real. And it just took um, self-reflecting. I mean, I definitely know that it it aggregated into a moment in that the snowball was getting larger and larger and larger until finally I couldn't ignore it anymore. Sort of that coming out moment did occur for me, but I'm not sure about the first eureka realization moment. I do very specifically remember going to my father the day that I decided um, I'm not doing this anymore and hoping Mm -hmm. that he would help me, you know, counsel me, work through some of these questions with me. And I, I told him my doubts and I told him my concerns. And instead of this, you know, instead of kind of counseling me through it, it was very hard line in the sand, kind of, I have a moral obligation to God to force you to go to church until you're 18, as long as I have custody of you. And that's what we're going to do if you want to live under my roof. So it was very ultimatum-y right out the gate. And at that point, at 15, you know, I was a, a super precocious kid. I actually ultimately ended up going to high school, or I'm sorry, leaving high school and going to college early. So I actually started college the very next year. I was definitely, and moved out, you know, moved Mm -hmm. into a house with some friends. So I was definitely like thought I was more grown up than I was. And I basically said to him, you know, I feel like if we went to a custody hearing, which I would hate for everybody to have to go through, but I spoke my case to a judge, like they would let me choose where I want to live. I'm old enough to make those kinds of decisions and I'm well-spoken. And he was like, well, that's, you know, that's your decision. If you don't want to go to church anymore, that also means you, you don't live with me anymore. So that happened. And I I didn't talk to my dad for many, many years, and he actually stopped paying child support. There was like a whole thing mm-hmm. um, when I decided to leave the church that was really kind of a, I wouldn't even say implicit, but a very outwardly spoken um, choice that once you do that, things are really going to change. And yeah, I didn't have a very strong relationship with my father for quite a few years. Since then, it's it's become much stronger. And, you know, I, I really care deeply about my father and I can be very open with him now. But we definitely have a different relationship now because I am an adult child of his. Do you think that if he had approached that conversation in a different way, that maybe your loss of faith, for lack of a better phrase, would have been postponed at all? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, but there may have been more amicable, you know, decisions that were made about keeping with the family. Or I, or I may have agreed to pretend a little longer. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. Maybe I wouldn't have worded it that way. But if he really was like, you know, let's do me a favor. Try this. Try that. We'll, we'll talk about this. And, you know, you can tell me your doubts and we'll work through it together. I probably would have agreed to keep going mm-hmm. and to, you know, try to work it out. But ultimately... Uh, not only do I not think that I would have believed any longer, um, I I 
would have probably been pretty bad at hiding it by that mm-hmm. point because I was a really rebellious teenager. And, you know, I had like piercings and dyed my hair and like I already looked like the bad Mormon girl at church, like quote <laughs> uh-huh. unquote, like I was wearing like plaid schoolgirl skirts and knee high boots and, you know, my hair was neon red. And, and so I already stuck out like a sore thumb in that environment. And I think it's sort of like and maybe the, I mean, I can't speak to this. I, I love the analogy, but I, I always try to caveat it with the fact that this analogy only goes so far but a lot of atheists have a coming out moment very similar to a lot of individuals um who are lgbt uh, or q and mm-hmm. you know when we come out you can't really put the genie back in the bottle after that you can sort of pretend in certain circumstances to ensure your safety or to ensure that you don't rock, rock the boat too much but ultimately once you've sort of admitted it to yourself you can't really go back from that. Mm-hmm. And do you think your father saw this as a, a personal attack on what he believed? Did you take it personally, you think? I think he probably took it personally, but not personally in the sense that I was attacking his beliefs. I think he took it personally in the sense that he had failed. You know, I, I always mm-hmm. try to exercise extreme, um, uh, like, I don't know, an extreme understanding of really where he is coming from. I want to make sure that I'm as empathetic as possible. And I know that ultimately both my father and I, even many, many years later after we've reconciled, we each possess our own amount of like sadness for the other individual. Me, because I look at the way he lives his life and I feel like, oh, he's in this bubble. And if only he could see how much more there is out there without religion and how he could, you know, find beauty and wonder and awe in the world and and not be God fearing and not be so afraid of death. And I shouldn't say hell because Mormons don't really believe in hell. But, you know, some of the negative consequences of the afterlife, although in his mind, I'm sure he's going to the celestial kingdom. So maybe that doesn't bug him as much. Um, (laughs) But he probably thinks I'm not, and that's super depressing. So, uh, you know, I feel kind of bad for him because he's sort of trapped in this mindset. But ultimately, of course he feels bad for me. He thinks that I'm damned. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, if if his framework were the true framework in, you know, the most kind of literal sense of the term, he he has to believe that I've gone astray and he has to believe that I've kind of committed in his view, the worst sin that you can commit, which is to accept Jesus and then deny Jesus. That's like worse than never having accepted it at all. But I'm a baptized Mormon who then left the church and ultimately declared that I don't believe in God or anything supernatural. Like that is a pretty terrible thing to do in the eyes of someone who's a true believer. So ultimately, I think he feels sad for me. I think that he really does kind of pray for my soul. And, you know, I guess that's really um, his way of showing how much he loves me. I don't know if he handled it that well when we were both younger. You know, he was a youngish dad and I was a rebellious teenager. Um, But it must really get to him. And I try to be as cognizant of that as possible and really respect where he's coming from and not, you know, downplay that aspect of things. But at least he's not constantly like, oh, I pray for your soul. Like he doesn't Mm -hmm. go there with me, which is nice. Right. Were there aspects about being raised in the LDS church that you appreciated at the time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, at the time, less so. I think now looking back, there are plenty of things that I appreciated. I think that the LDS Church has um, a pretty good handle on healthy living. 
You know, I think mm-hmm. I grew up without a lot of negative um, kind of health influences. Granted, I grew up LDS, which means like no caffeine, no alcohol, no cigarettes, blah, blah, blah. But I also grew up as a Texan, which means lots of red meat and like potatoes. <laughs> so <laughs> I wasn't the healthiest of eaters. But I think that that did kind of teach me to be sort of careful in my dealings and to not be overly consumptive of things. Like a lot of that is really kind of um, beat into you. And so I appreciate that. I appreciate the um, the emphasis that the LDS church put on family. Um, now looking back, I realize how incredibly important it really was. Granted, at the time, I hated it because I was like, I want to go out with my friends. Why do we have to eat dinner together every <laughs> night? And, you know, I don't want to have family home evening. You spend a lot of time at church when mm-hmm. you're an LDS teenager. Like... Some people may not realize this, or maybe they they do, because perhaps you've interviewed other um, ex-Mormons, but you go to, so church is three hours long every Sunday. It's like an hour and a half of, uh, gosh, I don't even remember what it's called anymore. It's been so many years. It's not communion, but like the main kind of part of church, and then about an hour and a half of Sunday school. Um, and then on Wednesday nights is youth group and youth group is incredibly sexist. And usually the boys are doing like churchy man things. And then the girls are like learning horrific domestic skills like baking cookies and scrapbooking. Um, <laughs> and then Monday night is generally family home evening, which is like a self kind of uh, uh, guided dinner, singing songs around the piano, maybe doing a church activity like a game or some sort of craft activity. And a lot of times the missionaries, you'll invite them on a rotating schedule to come over and have dinner with you. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, three, well, one day and then two nights a week. And then when you're in high school, you go to seminary, which is Bible and Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price. Those are all the books that they study. It's, um, It's study from 6 to 645 every morning at the church. Before school, it's horrible. It's like a lot of work, you know? And Mm -hmm. most kids, think about being in high school and how hard it was just to get up to go to school. Mm -hmm. But you had to get up so early. I mean, half the time we're in our pajamas or we're like pretending not to, but we're finishing our homework um, and pretending to pay attention. The one good thing I have to say that I got out of going to seminary is that um, when I had my learner's permit at 15, right before I left the church, you know how hard it is to get your parents to uh, take you out driving when you have your learner's permit. You have to drive with an adult, and you always want to get practice. And you're like, Mom, Dad, please take me to drive. Oh, I don't want to. I'm tired from work. But my dad would let me drive to seminary every morning. Genius, because there's, like, no cars on the road mm-hmm. at, like, 5.45 when he would pick me up from my mom's house. So he would come pick me up. I would get in the driver's seat, and I got to practice driving every morning. And so that was really um, exciting for me, and it did make seminary go down a little bit easier. But, ugh. I remember those days with disdain, and I think probably any former Mormons listening to this podcast right now are like, yeah, getting goosebumps thinking about it. It's interesting, isn't it, how there were things at the time when you were in the community that you hated, and yet now that you're not a part of the community, you look back at them fondly, or or the intention of those things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the dances, too. There were these things. They would do youth dances a lot, which is kind of cheesy. You know, it's like school dances, except everybody there was Mormon. But one weird thing, and I don't know if this is like a nationwide Mormon culture thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's global. but Or maybe it's just like a weird thing from where I grew up in the DFW area. 
but um, Dallas Fort Worth. Um, but we we had these incredible swing dancers. Like everybody was really into swing dancing, mm. and so at our church dances, we would practice our swing dancing skills. And some of the kids were phenomenal. And it turned into this kind of. It's so funny that I would say speakeasy because, like, it was not a prohibition area situation. There's definitely no alcohol involved. You can have root beer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 So long as it's caffeine free. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, but but the swing dancing aspect of it was super duper fun. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I think you can actually. Can you? Um major in ballroom dancing at Brigham Young University I think you oh can. you might be able to well there yeah. you go yeah I could see that you know one of my kid sisters went to BYU um one of my stepsisters she she studied nursing and then my older sister my biological sister she did uh an associate's degree at Ricks which is in Pocatello Idaho and it's kind of like the junior college um for BYU hmm interesting yeah yeah, you know, it, it's funny as someone who's I've studied a little bit about the LDS Church and I've met uh, a number of former Mormons. Um, there's this idea in kind of the general public that Mormons are kind of uh, different, but but really friendly, and they kind of do their own thing, and it's very innocuous. And yeah. uh, and I can understand where that comes from, even with something like the Book of Mormon, the musical, which pokes fun at a lot of this stuff, uh, which have, uh, you have seen. Is that right? Oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. It was so good. And an ex-boy, <laughs> I saw it back when I was dating um, an ex-boyfriend, and he took uh-huh. me for my birthday one year. I didn't get to see the, the New York performance, but I saw the L.A. cast, mm-hmm. um, uh, the touring cast right after, the Josh Gad cast. And uh, he told me after that he it was so obvious that I had lived some of this stuff because there were certain jokes that I would laugh at that no one else in the audience laughed at because they didn't get them. But certain mm-hmm. things hit mm-hmm. for me that like it operates on many levels. But ex-Mormons especially find that musical hilarious. Yeah. And it's hilarious even if you're not an ex-Mormon. But yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. great show. <laughs> um, I was in Salt Lake City uh, a few months ago, maybe six months ago. Uh, I did a screening of the film there and I met a, a number of former Mormons there. And one thing that really uh, struck me was... Uh, I was having a conversation with a, a, a husband and wife, and they were talking about their their daughter in high school. And again, there's this perception in the general public that Mormons are are very friendly and it's all nice and it's great. Um, but there's this kind of um, other layer uh, beneath that, um, which I learned. Um, the The parents were telling me that their their daughter, who's in a freshman in high school, that they know three students in her daughter's class who have committed suicide this mm. year alone um, because they were gay. Yeah. And yeah. It, it just puts this, this um, you, know, you know, you think of, again, Mormons as being very happy and, and family-oriented and this tight-knit community, all these aspects of, of uh, communities that we, we want to embrace. And at the same time, there's this darker side as well. Absolutely. And I mean, I I hate to paint everybody in a religion with a broad brush, but there are, I think, a lot of religions, especially, I guess we should talk about, we're we're in the U.S., we should talk about the dominant religion, which is Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, It it really is on a scale, right? There are, and not even a scale from like liberal to, to conservative, but more on a scale from kind of like, 
incredibly regimented to pretty loose. Mm -hmm. So there are, you know, Catholics in certain parts of the world who are incredibly regimented Catholics. And then they're like kind of like lazy Catholics and uh, everything in between. And then there are certain religions that fall on that scale. You know, if you are, um, let's say, uh, maybe not even, I was going to say Episcopalian, but let's think of something even more like Seventh Day Adventist. Mm -hmm. You're going to be like pretty regimented in your in your daily life or like Jehovah's Witness. But if you're like Methodist, you might be like kind of Methodist, you know, it's like <laughs> mm -hmm. eh, I kind of make it work however I want to make it work. And Mormons are generally more regimented. You know, there's very specific rules within the Mormon church that are passed down from the uh, from the prophet. They actually have a living prophet who they think talks to God. And so when he says something, they buy it, they listen to it. And then there's mm -hmm. hierarchy within the church and, you know, all the bullshit that's like super misogynistic and, you know, all the men have all the power and all of that. But I don't want to paint all Mormons with a broad brush, especially sure. in a place like Utah, because I definitely find that Mormon culture in Salt Lake is really different than in other places. It's so pervasive and it's even become part of the government mm -hmm. that you have all manner of Mormons there. Now, that said, most Mormons are pretty strict Mormons. And so I have a particularly interesting personal take on that. Um, when I was raised, it was myself and my older sister. My mother and my father had us. They got divorced. My father remarried a woman who had two daughters who were adopted, um, uh, twins, from Korea. And so I grew up with stepsisters that were um, kind of close to me in age who had a different dad. And a different mom biologically, but, a, you know, uh, but a different dad from my dad. Mm. And they became very close to my dad. And they became actually, I think, in many ways closer to him than their, than their father, simply because they lived with my dad and their mother. And I was really close to them. And they're great to this day. They're amazing. And they, they have beautiful half Korean um, children. So I have these lovely nieces that are really mm. sweet. Nieces and now a new nephew. But when we were all grown up, my older sister and my two stepsisters, the four of us, my parents decided that they wanted to have more children. And because my father's wife um, couldn't have children, that's why she had adopted to begin with. And because they were a little older, they decided to adopt and they decided not to adopt youngsters. They adopted three boys who were all already teenagers, brothers, um, which is an incredibly noble thing to do. And, you know, mm -hmm. just a lot of times by the time kids are in you know middle school high school even late elementary school it's very hard for them to get adopted so they'd been in and out of foster care they you know my parents fostered them for a while and said we want to take you in and we want you know to give you a home and there were various levels of difficulty with these kids ultimately um they are all growing up much healthier than they ever would have i think obviously in foster care and they have um resources available to them two of them are already grown and out of the house the youngest one is still in high school now one of those boys is gay hmm. and when they first adopted him they didn't know he didn't even know and you know in many ways they did what Mormons do and they sort of brainwash the kid and you know they tried to make them be more it's a little harder when you're like you know a teenager and it's like hey come be Mormon so with the oldest kid it was you know take it or leave it whatever like you're old enough to make your decision but with the middle kid he was just young enough like he was a tween when they were adopted mm -hmm. and so he went to boy scout camp and he did all those things and and he had some tendencies and everybody kind of noticed these tendencies and every so often he would get caught with a magazine or he would get in trouble and blah 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 but i really noticed a, a dark period where he had a lot of self-loathing Th that exact thing you're talking about where it's like he was taught 
that it wasn't okay to be who he was. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't even really admit it for years and years and years, not until he was actually grown and out of the house, I think, did he start to come into his own. And I look at my father and his approach with, with this stepbrother of mine, and... I'm glad my dad adopted these boys when he was much older and he had already gone through like the ringer with all of us girls because, <laughs> you know, he he softened with age like most parents do. They become less much less hard edged. They realize how to pick their battles and they realize, you know, that kids make mistakes. But beyond that, he had fathered so many children that he realized we all have our own personalities and we are who we are. We're not just cookie cutter, you know, images of you mm -hmm. and maybe what you expect. And so I think that there's still a lot of darkness in the relationship there in that I think that my father still kind of harbors this hate the sin, not the sinner mentality, which is kind of like, eh, I see what you're trying to do. <laughs> um, it's like, mm, but um, let's maybe not hate the sin either. But um, that said, I still think my father absolutely loves my brother and cares for him really deeply and, and ultimately understands that like he didn't fail and there was no mistakes that were made. It's just that this is like biology, you know? And mm -hmm. the thing is, Mormons are good scientists. They're often, they, they highly promote education and science. And they really care about, you know, what the scientific community is saying is true. And they often try to retrofit their, their sort of dogma to fit modern science. And so I think you do see this sort of edge, this bleeding edge of the left kind of progressive Mormon community that's kind of going like, wait, why didn't we let blacks in the in the church until like the 80s? Like what's going on with all the gay kids that are being ostracized? Like this is not OK. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's religion. And these are some of the evils that religion really, I think, bring to society. It's just this inability ability to open their eyes and to progress beyond some ridiculous interpretation of the Bible. Um, it's tough, you know, it's a tough, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on with a lot of these individuals. And um, as much as it would be easy for me to be like, oh, I hate it. It's not fair. And, you know, let him be who he is and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I do sort of appreciate the fact that my father does love my brother and Unfortunately, sometimes it takes these people who have these really, really kind of regressive conservative views. It takes them having somebody in their family who's a little bit different before they start to realize like, oh, this is what it means for somebody to be gay. Mm -hmm. What am I so upset about? How is your brother doing now in his relationship with the family? I honestly, it's really hard for me to say because I'm so outside of it. Like, I'm actually bummed out, um, you know, from time to time. When I go home, I see them. But I go home every two years. And my brothers were adopted after I already lived in, I think, New York, maybe after I had already moved to L.A. But I definitely hadn't lived at home for many years. So mm -hmm. they, they're they my brothers in the sense that, like, yeah, they're adopted and they're in the family. But, like, I, I don't really know them that well. Because I've maybe met them 30 times in my entire life. Mm -hmm. Like that's just kind of the nature of the beast as like as adopting kids once the other kids are are grown and out of the house and living their own lives. So, um, you know, a lot of what I hear is sort of secondhand and mm -hmm. I probably should do a better job of checking in and making sure everybody's OK. But you know, even my dad, when I asked him last time, he was like, oh, he's great. He's having fun with his friends. He, you know, he's like living the life. And I'm like, oh, that's good. That's really good to hear. So, yeah, hopefully 
they're coming around to it. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, yeah. And but it's tough. Yeah, I can't imagine going through that as like a twelve-year-old, though. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. horrible. You mentioned that uh, there is a, a big interest in the Mormon community in science and education. Mm-hmm. Um, is that where you got your uh, interest in science from? I think so. You know, my father is an engineer. Um, he doesn't work as an engineer now, but he studied engineering in college and he works uh, doing sales for an engineering firm. And my mother's an educator. She's a teacher. Um, she actually just retired this year from teaching Spanish for many, many, many years. She's actually a native speaker. My mom's from Puerto Rico. And they um, really, really taught me from a very early age the value of education. And they always promoted all of my scholastic endeavors. Like they were very good parents when it came to um, when it came to supporting me in school. And I was always a precocious student and I was always really involved in school, whether it be in choir. I was a big singer um, when I was younger, whether it be in choir or cheerleading and, you know, some of the extracurricular things that I did. But also I was always in honor society and I was always competing in the math Olympiads and and Odyssey of the Mind and all of these um, sort of uh, fun projects that you could do after school hours Um, Mm -hmm. and I was in a lot of gifted and talented programs and I don't think I would have been that way if it hadn't been for my parents really supporting that and fostering it in me so ultimately I didn't think I was going to be a scientist I didn't think I was going to study science science was scary to me math was scary to me like many young women when they first start college Mm -hmm. I went to school to study vocal jazz performance Uh, like I said I'd been a singer for many years but then I found psychology and I fell in love with it and through psychology I found neuroscience and ultimately went to graduate school for that Um, but it's funny because a lot of people ask me you know was it the atheism that influenced the science or was it you know or actually it's the other way around a lot of people are like yeah so once you became a scientist then you really started to question God right and I'm like, oh, I didn't discover science until I was like 19. Mm-hmm. Like, or maybe, meh, I guess I was like 17. I forget. I graduated in college when I was 20. So I had, I had probably declared my major by the time I was like 17. But I left the church at 15. I wasn't even thinking about science. They were like independent for me. Mm-hmm. Wow, you grew up quickly. You graduated college at 20. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, grow up, I think, is um, charitable. I thought I grew up quickly. <laughs> there's all sorts of other psychological baggage that comes with moving out and starting college when you're 16 and graduating before you can ever legally get into a bar um yeah you have to kind of you think you're all grown up and then you actually face grown-up problems and you realize like maybe I would maybe I would have been better off being a kid for a little longer (laughs) but you know that's what therapy is for (laughs) absolutely (laughs) <laughs> and you uh, you mentioned that you studied to be a scientist and you mm-hmm. transitioned to a, a lot of what you do now, which is being a science communicator. Can you talk about what that transition was like? Absolutely. Yeah. So I actually, um, you know, I did my undergrad in Texas and I did a psychology major and then I got a master's degree in biology. It was it was a neuroscience degree in that all of my coursework was neuroscience coursework, but we didn't, my school didn't offer neuroscience um, pieces of paper. So it was a biology mm-hmm. degree, but that was my concentration. Um, and then, and in between both of those, I took a year off to work. So I taught a little, I worked as a, a neuropsych tech doing um, neuropsychological evaluations for patients in a private practice office. Um, and I taught 
intro bio and intro psych all through that time. And then I moved to New York to start a PhD. I took a year off there and I was teaching and it was a lot of fun. And I was working in a lab, you know, I was I was taking my own coursework. I was working in a lab. I had transitioned from doing mouse research to doing bird research, but I was always an animal researcher in the neurosciences, which is um, really, really interesting and a lot of fun, but sometimes very tedious and sometimes stressful because you're dealing with living creatures. The The mouse stuff was a little easier because my job actually as the lab tech was to sacrifice um, these mice and then utilize their brain tissue. Um, and it's really hard when you first learn how to take the life of a, a lab animal. It's uh, incredibly emotional. And it takes a lot of training. And one, once you start to um, do it on a regular basis, it becomes easier. Mm-hmm. But um, when I was in New York I was in a bird lab and we worked with living animals so we had to do surgery and then they had to come back to life which is harder than it sounds um and then work with these birds and um gosh it was trying for me it was just really frustrating I had to learn a whole new brain bird brains are super weird they're fascinating but they're totally different mouse brains pretty analogous to human brains because we're both mammals but bird brains are like what is this so I always had a atlas open I was like I don't know what I'm doing it's like it's like driving in a foreign country you know like all the roads are wrong Mm -hmm. um and it just be, started to become more and more apparent that, like, I don't want to be a professor. I don't want to be a bench scientist. I'm not really enjoying the lab work. So, you know, for, for most graduate students, you have three responsibilities in this order, according to your major professor. Research, most important thing. Coursework, because you can't get your diploma unless you pass. And then teaching. Like, most people just teach because they need the money. Like, they Mm -hmm. don't do it because they enjoy it or they even want to. And I had that flipped completely. I love teaching. I would take on five courses a semester. And, of course, then, you know, my own coursework didn't really struggle because I loved going to class, too, and learning. But, God, did my lab work, you know, suffer. I did not enjoy doing my lab work. And I kind of took a step back and said, maybe I need to change my trajectory here. Um, and plus, I was I was depressed. We talked about this a little before we started the show, before we started rolling. But New York was hard for me. It was cold, uh, really cold. Ooh, I lived there during a terrible winter. I wasn't used to snow. Mm-hmm. It's always dark in New York because the buildings are really high. They block out the sun. I'm somebody who struggled since I was a child with major depressive disorder. And it was just, I, I learned very quickly, not a healthy place for me to live. I need sunshine. It's necessary for my psychological well-being um, growing up in Texas I got a lot of it now that I'm in LA I get a lot of it Mm -hmm. and so for a lot of different reasons New York wasn't working and it became a good time for me to make the decision to say you know what I'm going to take a break from academia I'm going to go do something else for a while I can always go back and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but because I came to L.A., I got a couple of opportunities to be like a, a guest on different shows because I knew stuff about the brain and people needed an expert. And I was sort of young and looked edgy. I had my lip pierced and I had tattoos. And, ooh, she's cool. She doesn't look like everybody else on TV. So mm-hmm. I would, you know, go on the show and I would talk about the brain and people were like, hey, you're pretty good at this. And and just out of that came serendipitously some, some job opportunities, which was very exciting. I never in tended for it to become my career to communicate science. I didn't even really know that was a career, but I met an incredible group of people out here in Los Angeles. Most of my friends are actually professional science communicators. Uh, We have a great kind of nuclear group. We've actually branded ourselves. We call ourselves the Nerd Brigade. (laughs) Um, 
And so, so I got, I know it's weird, but I love it. Um, and so I've, I've been influenced by them a lot and I've been able to actually make a real career of it. I didn't have to find a new path. That said, I did reapply to graduate school recently and I'm going to be going back starting this year, but I found an incredibly flexible program Mm -hmm. that I'm hoping will allow me to continue all the work that I've been doing in television and all the podcasting and and giving talks and stuff, but also uh, do my studies on top of that. So I'll be Dr. Santa Maria yet. It just might not be till I'm 40, (laughs) which is fine. Well, I have to call you doctor now. No, no, you won't. <laughs> Unless, but I am, I'm going for clinical psychology. So mm-hmm. once I get the PhD, if I finish and get the PhD, and then I get licensed, if you wanted to be my patient, <laughs> I still wouldn't have you call me doctor. <laughs> it would say it on my business card, though. Damn there it. you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how would you describe your style of communication? Oh, gosh, I have no idea. Honestly, I just I, I'm just me. Like, I think it's probably you should ask that question to somebody else. And then I want to hear what they say, because that would be interesting. Um, I have a few like rules, you know, some some nuggets of wisdom that I learned the hard way along the way. And I live by those things. I think I always give the audience a big benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. Working in Hollywood, especially I see the, the dark side of science communication in that I'll, I'll get booked on a science TV show, which, as we all know, are few and far between Mm because we just don't really value that with our education or I should say with our entertainment um, uh, landscape. But I see the side of, you know, producers and well-meaning people and people who are incredibly talented at making TV who just don't know enough about science being like, dumb that down, make it too stupid, make it easy. Like people are stupid. They're not going to understand it. You're going to lose them. Mm -hmm. And I feel really um, adamant that that's not the case. I think that you can communicate scientific principles in a way. This is my rule. Like when I give talks about SciComm, I always have like a list of rules. The first one, of course, is know your audience, right? If you're going to be communicating science, like you need to know who you're communicating it to. If you're talking to eight-year-olds, you're going to talk really differently than if you're talking to Mm 40-year-olds. And if you're talking to a a church group, you're going to speak incredibly differently than if you're talking to people in a bar. And so you have to know your audience first and foremost and where they're coming from and kind of meet them where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. But the second rule, and I think in some ways just as important as the first rule, is never underestimate the intelligence of your audience, but always underestimate their vocabulary. Hmm. I really, truly think that most of the scientific principles that we talk about when we do SciComm are completely graspable by everybody. You don't have to have a science background to understand certain aspects of climate change, to understand aspects of conservation, of space flight, of brain functioning. The problem is all of these fields are really jam-packed with jargon. Which makes perfect sense because scientists use this stuff all the time. They don't have to talk around every term and use seven words to say something when they could just use one word. But that's the case in any field. Anybody listening right now, think about what you do for a living, what your day job is. Maybe you work in IT. Maybe you are an electrician. Maybe you work in retail. There is shorthand that you use. There are terms that you use that other people who use a different dictionary just don't know. And if you start throwing that jargon around to your coworkers, it makes it easier for them to know what you need and to get it out quickly. But if you say it to the customer, they're going to be like, what the who, what? Like, just Mm -hmm. tell me what's wrong with my toilet. Like, I don't understand what you're saying to me. It's the same job for me. It really is. It's like, how do I explain this without using all these jargon words? But conceptually... 
it's not that hard to understand most things in science. Some are. Don't get me wrong. I'm not belittling the work that scientists do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes without the right background, it is very difficult to understand a, a concept. But I think that that's when the power of analogy becomes incredibly important. Usually, if you can come with a good illustrative analogy, it may not perfectly explain it. You know, if, if I was trying to explain something to you um, about quantum mechanics and I started using an analogy that kind of falls short in a couple places, that's okay because really we're trying to get the gist so that we have a better appreciation of the universe. I'm not trying to, to prepare you to then go on and be a theoretical physicist. If that were the case, I wouldn't be using the analogy. Mm -hmm. So that's really my approach is that I think people are smart and I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and I want to talk to them like they're human beings and I want to show them the respect that they deserve, but also excite them about the natural world around them and bring them back to that the, the truest sense of the word awesome. You know, we really overuse that word. Mm -hmm. Like, everything is awesome. Like, oh my God, this green juice is so awesome. No, it's not. No, it's not. But there are things that are awesome. And finding awe in the natural world is like really what SciComm is all about. What are some of the highlights for you in the work that you've done so far? Oh gosh, there's so many. I have the best job in the world. I'm, I'm incredibly lucky. Um, and both when it comes to these kind of flashbulb highlight moments, but also just my daily routine, I'm very lucky. I get to do about 50% of my job in my pajamas, which is awesome, mm -hmm. um, with my dog curled up on my lap also awesome. But I've also had the opportunity to meet incredible people. You know, think about almost any big scientist or science communicator mm -hmm. that's a contemporary. And I've probably been lucky enough to meet them, especially if they're local, but even some um, international individuals. But like, I'd say probably going to Stephen Hawking's birthday party. Mm -hmm. That was cool. You know, spending an evening learning about how he lives in his skin as an ALS patient, but also as somebody who is one of the most brilliant minds alive today. Like, that's a pretty exciting experience. Um, I've also gotten to, like, do cool science stuff. Like, I got to ride a hoverboard, and I've, I've been able to wear a spacesuit that was pressurized and really kind of feel what it's like to be in the shoes of some of the most incredible people who have some of the most incredible jobs. Gosh, just earlier today, like a few hours ago, before I had to leave the house to run a bunch of errands, I podcasted for my own show and it's not going to go up. Well, I don't know what your backlog looks like. So maybe it'll go up around when this show goes up, mm -hmm. but um, it may be a few weeks later. But I got to interview an astronaut, you know, and that's just like a day in my life. Like, oh, I got to interview an astronaut later. Like, that's mm -hmm. cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. When you were talking about all this, I thought, hey, that's a lot of kind of stuff I do, too. <laughs> yeah, right? Because yeah. we're freelancers. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what we do. And, like, we're free. Like, I'm a, I'm a journalist slash science communicator slash kind of entertainer or edutainer. Mm -hmm. And you really do a lot of that as a photographer, which is kind of like photojournalism to an extent, and then an artist. But also, you're getting more into this kind of edutainment with podcasting and with doing the film mm -hmm. and, you know, Making the photography book, it's much more than just here are some beautiful photos, which they are beautiful. Um, but it's also like here are some stories that I want to tell. And what I mean, what's more fun than just like hanging out with cool people and picking their brains? 
Yeah. It's funny. We were just talking before we, we, we started rolling that I was in Austin just the other day with Matt Stullhunty, our mutual friend. And, uh, and how I was thinking when I was down there, you know, I started this whole project and I got to meet just these incredible people and how lucky I am to know these people now um, mm-hmm. and consider them friends and spend time with them and pick their brains on things and talk about uh, both the kind of the big questions in life, but also kind of the day-to-day, every everyday things that we all kind of go through. It's, it's really an incredible experience. Absolutely. And it's like, there's just to me, there's just something really humbling and exciting and really thrilling just about surrounding myself with people who are way smarter than I am, you know, and I feel Mm. like that's what I get to do in my job. I get to better myself and learn more every day because I'm constantly interviewing people. And when I interview, it's I mean, sometimes for TV shows, it's more like a traditional interview. But for my podcast, very similar to yours. I mean, we just shoot the shit for an hour. So interview really means like hang out with. I get to hang out with people that are just brilliant and ask them about their perspective on life. And I get to ask, you know, an astronaut questions about politics. And I get to ask a cancer biologist about the climate and really get perspectives, like human perspectives from these individuals. Because of course, we sometimes forget that we are not just our jobs, that Mm -hmm. we actually have insights into the world. (laughs) And I I always love to talk to people about those kinds of deeper philosophical viewpoints, because they are, of course, informed oftentimes by their intellect and by the work that they do. And I love getting different perspectives from my different guests. Yeah, it's really amazing to be able to speak to people who have such a wide range of expertise and have done Mm -hmm. all these incredible things and have these experiences and have these ideas and just um, it's like a buffet. You know, you just get all these tastes of all these amazing things. It's really so true. Yeah, it is. And, you know, as a podcaster, one of the most fun things about podcasting is that you're your own boss. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I do TV shows a lot and sometimes I'm more involved. I'm a producer as well as the talent on the show or I I helped develop the show so I can really help uh, point the show in the direction that that. I feel is the way it should go. But most of the time when you're on a TV show in front of the camera, you were hired to do just that. You're the journalist or you're the reporter or the host or the correspondent or whatever your role is or the guest even. Mm -hmm. But with the podcast, I don't have any producers to answer to. I don't have anybody telling me what I have to do. Yeah, I do a science show technically. Like it is under the science uh, header in iTunes. But like I can interview whoever the hell I want. I interviewed you on the show and we talked about atheism the Mm -hmm. whole time. You know, like I can, I find somebody who I think is interesting. It's like, do you have anything to do with science? They'll be like, not really. I'm like, I don't care. It's my damn show. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's the best part is that not only do I get this huge buffet, I don't even have to be limited. I can just go wherever I want. And, you know, hopefully people enjoy it. Hopefully people want to listen. But I do the show as much for the listeners as I do for myself as a really creative outlet because sometimes working in TV, it's draining. You're you're always kind of trying to help deliver somebody else's vision. Mm-hmm. And from time to time, it's like, oh, I, I just kind of want to interview this person because I find them interesting. Like maybe nobody else does, but I don't care. You can just skip that episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's that's something that I love that is it's becoming easier and easier for those of us to do this kind of thing, 
more than it oh, used to Oh, anybody be. can podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hate to break it to you. Like, w- this is not special what we're doing. Like, <laughs> go get a cheap mic, plug it into your computer, get started. There are tools to democratize this. You don't have to know anything about audio editing. You'll figure it out as you go. I do it all myself, and I'm not that good at it. <laughs> but, but somehow people want to listen. So, And the great thing about podcasting, too, this is the dirty little secret mm-hmm. and you know why you never should wait if you want to start a podcast you should do it right now and the reason is we all suck when we first start and also nobody's listening from the beginning anyway so you can suck <laughs> mm-hmm. and then the the more you do it the better you get at it the more your audience grows organically with you and it really becomes a big family yeah yeah and then also for me at least i'm sure you experience this as well is you run into people who who listen to you and they feel a closeness to you in a way that um, it's sometimes hard to understand, but then I, I remember somebody came up to me and was really excited to, to see me and listen to the podcast and was, was really excited. And it took me a while to, to realize, oh, you know, I'm in their head for like yeah. an hour every day. And yeah, like, like physically, like yeah. literally in their ear holes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and also, you know, you become this 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 voice and it becomes very intimate. And there's a, a back and forth because of social media and because of things like Patreon where you can people can tell you what they think immediately. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can get to know um, your fans and your guests and everything. Uh, you know, once in a while I'll get recognized on the street because I do a lot of work in television, but not that often, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, because it's very niche, the work that I do. It's very, you know, Nat Geo Discovery Channel. Um science channel all that and so every so often i'll be somewhere and oh my gosh i saw you on this show and i'm like shut up that's crazy i always get really excited when people i'm like no way and then i'm like can we take a picture like i get insane but i was at the park um a few months ago griffith park which is right by my house with Mm -hmm. my boyfriend and um his parents were in town and so they wanted to go on a nice walk and we went to this beautiful part of griffith park and we were going on a walk and these girls stopped stopped us in their car and they were like hey do you know how to get to the carousel? Like they were trying to find, you know, this one part of the park. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, 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 you went too far. You need to go back, um, turn around, go to the street, blah, blah, you'll find it right there. And the girl looked at me and she goes, are you Cara Santa Maria? And I was like, yeah, hi. And she was like, I recognize you by your voice. Like she didn't know that it was me when she asked me for directions until I started talking to her. And then she knew it was me because she hears me on Talk Nerdy and The Skeptic's Guide. And I was like, that's crazy. Wow. <laughs> like, like that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard, but it made me so happy. I don't think of myself as having a very particular or peculiar voice, mm-hmm. but um, I guess when when you listen to the same people over and over, they're like an old friend. You know, you, it's like just when somebody calls you on the phone, you know who it is immediately. Yeah, there are probably people who listen to us or hear our voices more often than their friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. Because it's funny, I try to maintain perspective about that, but I'm not a big podcast listener to her. Um, I know a lot <laughs> of podcasters who like constantly listen to podcasts. And I know some podcasters who just don't really. Um, I just don't really listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of classical music. I have very bad road rage. I must listen to a lot of <laughs> classical music. It's the only way to control it. And then otherwise, I read a lot. I'm just not that auditory. I do listen to music, of course. But like, I'd rather read the words with my eyes. Than, than listen to a book on tape, for example. And mm-hmm. so podcasts can be kind of frustrating for me because I might um, my attention will get divided and then I like have to rewind it. And, you know, it's just not the medium that um, is the best for me. Mm-hmm. But people who listen to podcasts are just like 
they love it. They listen to them all day, every day. And you're right. There are people who probably hear us more than they than they talk to their friends. And I think that's crazy, but also really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, when you and I first met, probably was it three years ago now? It's been a it's been a while. Um, yeah. You talked about this and, I, and it's in the film and I, it's one of my favorite pieces because you talk about this quote by Carl Sagan mm-hmm. and the quote is we are a way for the cosmos to know itself and you love this quote so much I'll let you finish this sentence that I got it tattooed on me <laughs> I do I do I love it I think it's a beautiful quote I don't know if the meaning that I pull from it is the exact meaning that was meant by Dr. Sagan mm-hmm. but um but that's the great thing about poetry and like not for nothing but he was a damn good poet i know Mm -hmm. maybe he didn't set out to write poetry but all of his words were poetic and to me um we are a way for the cosmos to know itself is uh is kind of the most badass atheistic thing you could say but still in a quote unquote spiritual i generally hate that phrase Mm -hmm. but like i'm gonna give a benefit of the doubt here a quote unquote sort of awe and wonder spiritual kind of way so so basically i break it down as there is no god there is no higher power and there is no kind of collective consciousness there's all this new agey woo like where they try to apply quantum mechanics to thought and consciousness bullshit right so the universe does abide by certain laws but those laws are mathematical in nature there is a certain type of organization that just simply exists because it's the only way it would be the way it is now it wasn't teleological um it wasn't uh, that you know it was meant to build this way so it did build this way there there is no actor um the universe is also not communicative it's not conscious it can't think it can't reflect it just is there but we are this lucky infinitesimally small group of of species or of a species we are one species humankind that has this incredible capability to use language and poetry um to reflect on our place in the universe which is incredibly rare in the grand scheme of things we don't know how many other intelligent species there are out there but we at least know that in our neighborhood which is filled with millions and millions of planets and stars we're probably the only one within a a close um, range simply because we've done a pretty good job of exploring that close range definitely the only one in our own solar system Mm -hmm. at least temporally at least right now we are um and we are made of stardust you know we know that the molecules within our body were were constructed out of uh, the supernova of stars like we know that all of matter in the universe is is just recycled and we can trace back these core components to the early early universe and and they're within us and so I, I feel like through transitive properties we because we are the ones who are conscious and can reflect are a way for the cosmos to know itself since it is lacking that thing that makes humanity so special it is lacking consciousness but we have that and and we're made of we're made of the universe we are the universe um and to me that thought is just so profound and so beautiful and in many ways gives me the things that i think religion gives to so many other people um and uh and i just love it i i just think that sagan was an incredibly uh talented and and insightful individual uh, anybody who hasn't read his books i highly recommend it 
um, or watch the original Cosmos series. It's just so meaningful. I mean, it's a bit dated. Like, if you didn't see it the first time, you might not have the same nostalgia that a lot of people seem to have for it who are maybe a little older. Mm-hmm. But there's still such beauty, even in, in this old series. And if you want to hear it with a new twist... I don't know if you've ever heard Symphony of Science. It's a it's a YouTuber. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember his name right now. Dang it! I'm so sorry. I'm blanking on your name. But just Google Symphony of Science, and he he auto tunes uh, different scientists and, and makes these beautiful songs out of it. And he actually auto tunes that line in a, in a very beautiful song called "We Are All Connected" that features Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye and um, Carl Sagan and Richard Feynman quite heavily. So I definitely recommend Google Symphony of Science. We are all connected. And I think you'll get a new appreciation for for this Sagan quote. And that was uh, that was actually my ringtone for a while. Was that one? Ah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's hilarious. See, was. you and I are connected. I know. Look at that. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kara. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. This is so much fun. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit Patreon.com/slash/TheAtheistBook. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.